You can turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, just give you a quick update on Happy Grant. He's home recovering, doing fine. And uh, he probably won't have his other uh, surgery and his carotid arteries till probably uh, September, October, November, whenever they feel he's up and, and good to go with that. So we want to continue to be praying for them. Dana, thanks so much for coming and, and being willing to share with us uh, your ministry with the Gideons. We really appreciate that. And uh, I was really blessed at the, uh, and I know everyone that was with us from our church the other night at the, uh, the banquet, and it was uh, done with quality and excellence, and it was uh, just wonderful to hear how uh, the Word of God has changed so many lives. And um, we, we definitely uh, want to continue to pray for you and your ministry. Today, as we come to the 8th chapter of Romans, uh, yeah, finally finished with chapter 7, I want to start a little series, Free at Last, No Condemnation in Christ. Okay, that's an exciting uh, title, but it's also a very exciting chapter. This chapter in the Bible has been called by some to be one of the the greatest chapters, if not the, the, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, personally, I feel you get on shaky ground when you start declaring certain chapters of, of God's Word the greatest. Uh, because it might be greatest for you today, but next year when you're going through something different, another <laughs> chapter might ring true to your heart, and that might be the greatest. So you have to be careful with that. But nonetheless, I remember what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones Uh, said one time um, as I was reading one of his messages, he said, for the preacher, the greatest book of the Bible is the one that he is expounding at the moment. Amen? I mean, that's that's very important to to keep that in mind. Uh, But obviously, as you have probably read through Romans chapter 8 several times, you understand uh, what I'm talking about. It's just a wonderful chapter. Charles uh, Trumbull He was an editor who's deceased now of the Sunday School Times. He wrote this about Romans chapter 8. He said, The eighth chapter of Romans has become very precious to me, beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and in between there's no defeat. This wonderful chapter sets forth, he goes on, and says, The gospel and the plan of salvation. The life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man, and the righteousness of the born again. In the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and the blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good, every tense of the Christian life is addressed. The past, the present, the future, and the glorious. The climatic song of triumph. No separation in time or eternity from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was an old commentator, Philip Spinner, who said this. He said, if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans was a precious stone, well then chapter 8 would be the sparkle point of that jewel. And there's a lot of commentators that agree, and most believers agree. And the Bible's an interesting book, because even though the book offers the good news of salvation from sin, amen, 
It also is a book that presents the bad news of condemnation for sin. John MacArthur said that no single book or collection of writings on earth proclaims so completely and vividly the total desperate situation of man apart from God. I know that in my own life when I've come to Romans chapter 8 over and over and over again when maybe I've been discouraged or depressed. I mean, I don't know how you can read this chapter and still be depressed, to be honest with you. It's just an uplifting chapter of Scripture. If you're struggling with guilt today, beloved, I want to tell you, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with sin, read Romans 8. If you're going through trials, tribulations, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with your prayer life, if you don't know how to pray, read Romans 8. If you're struggling maybe as a believer with the assurance of your salvation, read Romans 8. What's interesting about Romans chapter 8 is the flavor of the whole chapter is kind of one giant exhortation. But when we read through it, you're going to notice something. You're going to notice that there's not a single command in the chapter. And I'd like to point out, before we read the book, the chap, not the book of Romans, the chapter 8, we'd be here all day. Um, chapter 8, we just finished Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, we saw the personal pronoun I, very prominent. Paul constantly referring to himself. I, me, over and over again. We saw where the law was very prominent. That sin was dominant. Now, when we come to chapter 8, the one thing that sticks out, and you'll see it and you'll hear it as I read it for you over and over again, is that the Holy Spirit is very frequently mentioned almost 20 times in this one chapter, more than any other chapter in the New Testament. God's grace, His preserving love are prominent. And you know what? Victory over sin is dominant. There's a lot of different ways you can outline this chapter. Some people say verses 1 to 13 deals with justification and sanctification. Verses 14 to 17 deal with us being adopted, our adoption. Verses 18 to 30 deal with our glorification. And verses 31 to 39 deal with our assurance But I just want you to know that as we go through this in the coming weeks, we will see transformation in our own lives because of the power of God's Word. So turn your hearts to God's Word, Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read the entire chapter just to keep it in its context. And then we'll just basically hopefully get to the first verse as we do some introductory uh, stuff today. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His 
own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, mark it, cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through his spirit who give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but even we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows 
what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Now we can go home, right? Almost. Now, that's kind of the overview of the whole chapter. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to pick this apart. Like I said, we're just going to spend a little time here today. But next week, we're going to get basically all the way into verse 4. But we have to remember where we're coming from in order to understand why this chapter is such an incredible chapter. Remember in chapter 7, what were we dealing with? We were dealing with the believer's fight with sin. Okay, that war within That new man in Christ trying to uphold God's holy law. But because of our flesh, because of indwelling sin, sometimes we are held captive by the law of sin, as Paul says. And there are times in our lives as believers we want to do what's right. We know what it is to do that's right. But somehow we end up doing the very thing that we know is not right. The thing we hate, the sin. And when we looked at Romans chapter 7, we talked about a lot of controversy, who is talking there, and we believe that it's Paul. I'm a simple person. I read it. It seems like Paul wrote it. I think he's talking of himself. And I think he's talking of himself at a very mature point in his life where he can truly understand the power of sin in his life. And the difficulty and the struggle that he has with it. That takes a mature Christian to admit that. 
When someone first comes to Christ, man, they think they're going to go out and conquer the world. They're just ready for everything. You talk to them three weeks later, "Ah, I'm still dealing with this sin. I thought this would go away. No, you'll have that sin as long as you have your body. We won't be free from the presence of sin until we are glorified in his presence. So it's a struggle that we have. So sin and guilt are always part of the believer's life. Hopefully less frequently as we mature in Christ. But nonetheless, nonetheless, it's going to be there till the day you die. And so Paul, in the flow of Romans, is presenting the truth of justification by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been studying for the last year or so. And this whole book is dedicated to explaining the meaning of our salvation. The meaning, what does it mean to be saved by grace through faith? And we started out in the first three chapters, you remember, and we spent many, many weeks, months, defining the sinfulness of man. And I kept on having to remind you, hang in there. Good news is coming. Right now it sounds like a desperate, horrible time every time we come. And boy, we're just dealing with sin and sin. Hang in there. And so we see that taking place throughout those first several chapters. And then starting just near the end of the third chapter, salvation began to unfold as the only solution to this horrible blight of sin. This horrible disease that every one of us has been hit with. Since the middle of chapter 3, right through the end of chapter 7, there has been a very careful discussion that we've had about the matter of salvation. And it all comes to a kind of a climactic peak right here at the beginning of chapter 8. Now we said the main, the main kind of topic here in chapter 8, person you might say, is the Holy Spirit. And I think that we need to spend a little time here and, and share a little bit about this third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned nearly 20 times in Romans chapter 8. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians know very little about the Spirit of God. I mean, they get it. You know, yeah, he's part of the Trinity. But there's actually a theology called pneumatology that's the study of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to share with you some notes that I scribbled down from MacArthur and others that talk about the Spirit of God. And just to kind of put it in its proper context, I think that if we just kind of forge ahead and go through this chapter and not understand, well, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is, our, is to our spiritual lives what the Creator is to the physical world. If you didn't have a creator, we wouldn't have any. We wouldn't be here, right? Without God, without the creator, the physical world would not exist. And without God's and Christ continuing to sustain and uphold the world, it would literally just crash and go out of existence. That's the thing with scientists. They say, you know, we... We, we believe all this stuff about evolution, but when we get down to the, the atom and we get down to these things flying around, you know, why don't they just go, what keeps them all together like that? 
Colossians tells us it's the power of Christ. And one day, he will let go. (laughs) Luckily, I don't believe we're going to be here, praise the Lord. But when he lets go, there's going to be devastation. Without his continuing, sustaining, upholding power, the world would literally just fall apart. It's doing a pretty good job on its own, I have to say, but... In terms of spiritual dimension, without the Holy Spirit, we would have never been saved. We would have never been recreated to who God wants us to be. Remember, salvation is not addition. Salvation is not you changing your ways and adding a mantra or adding a list of things that you have to do to your life. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is transformation. Salvation is you giving up and saying, okay, that's it, it's over. And God recreating you into whom he desires you to be. Without the Spirit's power, we could not have been recreated. We could not have been transformed. We could not have been saved. Without his sustaining presence in our lives as believers, where would we be? I think we would crash right back to the spiritual deadness from which we came. We need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is a power that God uses in our lives every moment to encourage us, to comfort us, to convict us. So the Spirit of God is very important when it comes to a believer. It's who gave us life. And it's through whom that life is sustained spiritually. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a influence. The Holy Spirit is not some power. He has power, but he's not a power. The Holy Spirit is a person. So when you refer to the Holy Spirit, never refer to him as it. Think if your husband, when talking to friends, referring to his wife referred to her as it. That would not be very flattering. He would be in a lot of trouble. That would not be good. So we don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it. We always refer to the Holy Spirit as he, because that's what the Bible refers to him as. As the third person of the Godhead, equal to the Father, equal to the Son, in deity and in personhood and in personality. But when you study your Bible and you start to look up the Holy Spirit, you're going to find a lot of things about him. You'll find that the Holy Spirit possesses mind. The Holy Spirit possesses emotion. The Holy Spirit possesses will. That's what makes him a person. He knows the deep things of God. The Bible says that he loves the saints, that he makes decisions, he speaks, he prays, he teaches, he guides, he commands. The Bible says that he fellowships, he comforts, he may be grieved, he may even be quenched. And you know what? You can even lie to the Holy Spirit of God. He may be tested. He may be resisted. He may even be blasphemed. And all those things make him a person. And when you look at your Bible, you're also going to find that there's certain attributes that the Holy Spirit has, that the Son has, that the Father has. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is eternal. 
The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He's all-knowing. The Bible also says that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. Wouldn't you love that, moms? To be everywhere at the same time. (laughs) He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's holy. He's glorious. The Bible calls him God, Lord, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord God, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit of His Son. But He's also called our Comforter. The Bible tells us that He was active in creation when God was making everything. That he indwelt certain people living in the Old Testament when they needed kind of a special empowering power. It says the Holy Spirit would come and anoint them. That he convicts men. That he enables men to serve God. Listen to this. That he is the agent by which the scriptures were written. He's the one that's responsible for this. That in the life of Christ, for example, he was involved in his birth, his baptism, his temptation, his anointing, his teaching, his miracles, his death, and even his resurrection. That in the world, the Holy Spirit is involved in convicting men of sin, in calling men to himself, and calling men into service. He's involved in witnessing to the testimony of Christ. He is involved in regenerating and bringing about the new birth. And the Bible tells us that in the case of the believer, the Holy Spirit is engaged in glorifying Christ in the life of the believer. Aren't you glad, believer, that that's not left up to you? Aren't you glad that God just didn't wipe out all your sins and save you and say, here now, glorify me the rest of your life? Ah, I've got a problem here, God. (laughs) No, he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell right within us, to to kind of walk us down that path. He doesn't just leave it up to us. He indwells us. The Bible says that he fills us or controls us. He gives to us as believers the fruit of, of the Spirit. Notice I said fruit, not fruits. That wonderful chapter in Galatians, you know, love, joy. I've heard Christians time and time again say, well, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, it's like the fruits of the Spirit. No, it's, it's fruit. He's describing fruit with those many words. You can't just take joy and pick that and say, hey, I think I'm going to be joyful today, but <laughs> long suffering, no thanks. No, you can't do that. They all represent God's character and what he expects to see in our lives. And so he imparts those gifts to us. He seals us. He communes with us. He fellowships with us. He teaches. He prays. He wars with the flesh. He comforts. He prays for, sanctifies, and empowers us for service. I mean, you can go on and on as you read the pages of Scripture, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In every sense, fulfilling the role of God. 
through that third person of the Trinity. And we say all that to bring us to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Freedom from judgment, no condemnation. Free at last. Well, what are you free from? Well, we're free from judgment. We're free from defeat. We're free from discouragement, from fear. See, the Bible points out to us very clearly that unless you come to Christ, all those things are going to be facing you one day. Judgment, defeat, discouragement, fear. And I would even add to that all of eternity in a place called hell, which is not a very nice place last time I checked. Well, why is that? It's because of man's condition. Because of man's sinful condition by just naturally. Think about it. Just naturally, because we're born in sin, we're born in the bondage to death. Because of sin, we are heirs of God's judgment. That's what the Bible says. Because of sin in our lives, we are under a curse, the Bible says. And because of sin, we are bound to an eternal place called hell. And the Bible has told us over and over again, and even in the book of Romans, as we we studied through this, ever since the fall, every human being has been born into the world with sinful nature. It's just part of who they are. Remember all the way back when we were studying Romans chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 23. We know that verse very well, right? Let's say it together. For all have sinned and fall short of God, the glory of God. Because of that universal sin problem, all unbelievers are under God's condemnation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 calls them, by nature, they are what? Children of wrath. I don't know about you, but if there's one thing I don't want to be is under God's wrathful judgment. That just doesn't seem like a good place to be. And man is not simply influenced by sin, okay, but he is completely overpowered by it. And no one can escape that sinful influence by their own effort. I mean, even given your best day, you know, you're... you're, pulling your bootstraps up and you're thinking, man, I'm going to live a, a life that's honoring to the Lord. Outside of God's power and His intervention, you don't have a prayer. We'll fall on our face every time. Because sin is some devi- defiling disease that corrupts every person. It degrades every individual. Disquiets every soul. I don't care if you're a beggar on the street or you're the Pope. You've been Affected by sin. It steals peace. It steals joy from our heart. And it replaces it with trouble. It replaces it with pain. And sin is something that is implanted in every human life. And it brings this universal depravity 
that no one, no one can cure. Sin places men under the power of Satan, the ruler of this present world system. You know, you read the news, it doesn't take you long to figure out that the the wheels are coming off the cart. Whether you're reading about politics, whether you're reading about world events, doesn't matter. There's chaos ruling this world. And Satan is behind it. And I appreciate so much what Dana said when he was sharing about, you know, the very fact that the people outside these four walls are not our enemy. They're victims of the enemy. We have to remember that. Because they need that life-changing message of the gospel just like we needed it. And Paul went on even to remind the Ephesian believers that all Christians were once a part of that evil system. As such were some of you, I think he says. Jesus declared that Satan is the spiritual father of every unbeliever. I really have to bite my tongue sometimes when I go to certain events. And a lot of times it deals with chaplaincy. And you're there and you're in a room and around a table sharing. And some of these people clearly are not even believers. They're following a false teaching, a false doctrine, but they're serving. They're trying to do what they can. But inevitably, when we're sitting there around the table sharing, somebody always says, well, after all, isn't everybody a child of God? And I just start to, you know, grip my teeth. And I try to say lovingly, well, I don't agree with that statement. Because the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that, unfortunately, some are children of the devil. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John says this, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. He doesn't know anything but sin. And so because of this sin, beloved, all of us are tainted. All of us are in this bondage, pain, disease, death. And because of that sin, all of humankind, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, we just read it, creation was subjected to futility. And the creation itself groans, suffers the pains of childbirth, Until now, together until now. Because of sin, fallen men are heirs of God's judgment. See, if we don't understand why we are condemned in the first place, then verse 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation, doesn't really mean anything. So we have to lay a foundation. We have to understand, well, what's this condemnation thing all about? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27 The writer says, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume God's adversaries. Because of sin, there's a curse on the sinner's soul. Jesus himself said in Mark 16, verse 16, he who has disbelieved shall be, what? Condemned. That's what it says. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be 
accursed. That's not good (laughs) to be accursed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 says, For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and perform them. When's the last time you broke a jot or tittle of the law, something that God told you to do through his word and you didn't do it? Well, guess what? You're cursed. We all are. And God is justified in his condemnation of sinners. John MacArthur shares three reasons for this. He says, first of all, he is justified because of all men through their lineage to Adam, share in the original guilt of original sin and in the moral and spiritual depravity it produces. That's what we read back in Romans chapter 5. Remember verses 17 to 18? For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So because we're connected to Adam, and we all came from Adam and Eve... God is just in condemning us. Secondly, God is justified, he says, in condemning sinners because every person is born with an evil nature. Every person is born with an evil nature. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We're all cut. From the same form. There's not a person here in this room that could say, oh, I've never dealt with sin. I was born perfect. No. You don't have to teach your little child how to sin or misbehave or be disobedient. They just do it naturally. Third, he goes on, he says, God is justified in condemning sinners because of the evil deeds their depraved natures inevitably produce. I mean, this is something you can see very clearly today in the world, right? Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 8 says, God will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Verses like that give me the grace that I need when I hear a doctor talking about the way they abort a fetus, a baby in the womb, in order to preserve some of the organs so that they can sell it as they're drinking their wine and munching on their salad. Disgusting. You know what? God will render to every man or woman according to their deeds. They won't answer for it. 
And that baby that they tore apart in the womb, in my mind, is in the presence of the Lord immediately anyway. That's the only hope we have. And because of sin, the unregenerate have no future to look forward to at all except damnation to hell. That's what the Bible says. It's called the second death, the lake of fire, judgment without mercy, pain without remission. The Bible says that the lost will be in a place of utter, outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Romans chapter 3, Paul said in verses 9 to 18 there, he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's nobody who seeks for God. There's none who does good. He even says, with their tongues they keep on deceiving. Destruction and misery are in their paths. There is no fear of God in their eyes. That's the society in which we live. And he describes for us, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin And so death spread to all men because all sin. That the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions resulting in justification. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men, that being the sacrifice of Christ. We need to be reminded today, beloved, That we are all faced with being condemned by God if it weren't for the grace and the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded that it's through His precious Word, it's through the power of the Spirit, that when we leave these four walls and we go out and we're faced with people, In the grocery store, at the Little League practice, at our place of work. As our brother said earlier, they're all going to spend eternity somewhere. And we have the opportunity to at least bring the food to the table, bring the message to their heart. What they do with it, we can't control that. But we definitely can be the messengers of this good news. I mean, that's the whole purpose of salvation. So that we can say, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 